The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. There is debate in India where people are looking at the economic impact of the coronavirus crisis on the poor. And there is concern that more people may end up dying of poverty and then the economic consequences of the crisis then actually directly as a result of the coronavirus. In many parts of India, the economy has come to a grinding halt. People are laid off, they don't have access to jobs, shops are closed, lives have been upended by this crisis. It's only once the economy begins to open up and we see some signs of revival will we be able to understand what the true impact has been. But it doesn't look pleasant from where we're sitting right now. In this episode, COVID-19 shining a harsh light on India's social and political fault lines. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. In India, as in much of the world right now, the fight is on against the spread of SARS-CoV-2, more commonly known as coronavirus. While reported numbers of infections remain comparatively low as this podcast is recorded, India is making headlines for imposing the world's biggest nationwide lockdown to try to stem the spread of the virus within its densely populated borders. Hundreds of thousands of migrant workers forced to walk back to their villages are just one piece of the pandemic's impact in India, with so many informal workers who have no economic safety net, a public health system under strain even at the best of times, extensive misinformation and scapegoating along religious lines, India faces enormous challenges in the time of coronavirus. So what is the pandemic revealing about the social, political and economic fault lines already apparent in India? How is India responding and are there lessons from the crisis? And if, as we often hear, the world will not look the same when the pandemic is over, what does that mean for India? Joining me to discuss these questions and many more are Ear to Asia regular guest, political scientist Dr. Pradeep Tunisia of the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences, and health policy researcher Dr. Azad Bali of the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy at Australia National University. Welcome, Bali, and welcome back, Pradeep. Thank you, Ali. Hi, Ali. Let's start with a state of play question, if you like. We're certainly not epidemiologists, but Pradeep, can you give us a general sense of how India is being affected by coronavirus? Well, in relative terms or per capita terms, India is not as badly affected as many other countries, particularly Italy or Spain or the United States. But it is something which is very concerning because India has a very large population with, you know, a lot of uh, very poor people living in conditions which are far from uh, sort of ideal. So the worry in India is that if this pandemic spreads more rapidly, then it could become very difficult to control it. So, for example, in Bombay, uh, the, the, the largest slum in Asia and Dharavi, already there are 100 cases there. Both the state and the central government in India are very concerned that if this continues to spread at that rate, then this could become a very serious problem. So at the moment in India, there are, for example, at the end of the third week in April, there are only about 16,000 cases, which is not as bad as um, 
you know, many of the European countries or the United States. But it has the potential to become much worse. Bali, are you surprised by the low numbers to date? To some extent, yes. Uh, because when I initially thought of this pandemic hitting India, I was really apprehensive that this might really blow out of proportion and there would be widespread transmission. But as Pradeep says, we have just about 16,000 cases and the death rate or fatality rate is much lower. We have about 500 deaths. Even more surprising is that the average growth rate of the disease is around 5.5%. What that means is that the total infections double every 11 days or so. So the impact is not as severe as it is in other parts of the world. Can we trust the numbers, Bali? I don't see any reason to mistrust the data. There are discrepancies in the data being reported through all sources. If you look at the numbers that are put out by the World Health Organization, by John Hopkins University, there are slight variations in all country data. Pradeep, do we have any sense of the timeline of the virus in India? How much do we know about how it's spread so far? Well, initially, the virus in India spread uh, relatively slowly. So, for example, the first case of coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, as it is now known, was detected at the end of January, on the 30th of January in the state of Kerala, where you had an Indian student. There are about 20,000 Indian students studying in China. And this uh, student from Kerala, he returned to uh, Kerala from Wuhan, which is not surprising that uh, it was the, the holidays there. And when he returned, he tested positive to coronavirus. And then throughout uh, February, it actually did not spread very much because in the first week of March, there were only about 10 cases of coronavirus. So over a month, you had from zero to only about 10. But in March, it seems to have um, ratcheted up a bit and we've seen a higher rate of infection beginning, uh, you know, the first week of March. Notwithstanding that higher rate of infection in more recent times, Bali, why do you think that India is doing better than you might have expected? I think there are a few reasons for this. First, India has a relatively young demographic profile. Around 28% of its population is under the age of 14, and about 67% of the population is above the age of 65. India, therefore, has a very young population, which may have helped cushion the severity of the illness in India. Second, India is also under a lockdown, which was enforced at a very early stage in March. However, prior to the nationwide lockdown, many state governments had already introduced similar quarantine measures on a smaller scale in certain districts within their state. This was layered on with the suspension of visitors, um, tourists from known hotspots such as China and Iran very early on, and a ban of all tourists coming in to India in mid-March. And you, Bali, at the outset, you did say that you were surprised, you feared when you first heard of this virus about what impact it could have in India. Tell us a little about the healthcare system, which is such a vital backdrop to this. Sure. Um, any comment on India's health system must recognize a large variation across states in access to healthcare, the conditions of hospitals and health outcomes. This is largely because palliative healthcare is a state responsibility. So if you take the examples of the southern states, for example, Kerala and Tamil Nadu, which have 
uh, a greater proportion of the elderly population, they have fertility rates of about 1.8. Uh, but you contrast that with the, the northern states of Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, their fertility rates are 3.1, 3.2. So there's a large variation in epidemiological profiles, demographic profiles, and access to healthcare across India. Having said that, um, historically, India has not prioritized its uh, health system. On conventional health indicators such as mortality rates, life expectancy, India doesn't do very well, especially when you adjust it for its levels of economic development. The health system is largely privately organized. And by privately organized, I mean that most healthcare, about two-thirds of healthcare is delivered at private hospitals and paid for by individuals themselves without access to insurance, largely through their own savings. There are public hospitals. These are free of cost and anybody can access them, but these are largely overcrowded and can't cope with the sheer demand that exists in India. In terms of what India spends on healthcare, um, the total spending is about 4% of GDP. Uh, that's public and private put together. But public spending is relatively small. Public spending on healthcare is about a percent of GDP. And the private sector accounts for the remaining 3%. So, Pradeep, can I ask you, if you're poor in India, do you have access to healthcare? Technically, you do. And particularly recently, and Bali can probably talk more about it later on, about a new insurance scheme, a health insurance scheme called Ayushman, which the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi has introduced recently. And that promises uh, or shows the people of uh, India, particularly the poor, that they are guaranteed up to about 500,000 rupees, which is about 10,000 Australian dollars of health cover in a year. And that also means that patients uh, who belong to this uh, the category, in other words, people who are living below poverty line, that they can get treatment in both public and private hospitals supported by this insurance scheme. In practice, I'm not sure how it's actually being implemented because on paper in India, there are lots of schemes that are supposed to benefit the poor. But in practice, often implementation is lacking behind you know, the, the intentions of the government. So although the government has introduced this scheme, which is commendable, in practice, we will see how this is implemented, particularly with the private hospital system. Because as Bali said, the healthcare system in India is dominated by private hospitals and private healthcare providers. And this new insurance scheme that the Indian government has introduced does say that patients can go to private hospitals. But in reality, when a poor person turns up at a private hospital in India, they're not as easily welcomed by the hospital staff as somebody who's dressed nicely, who speaks English, uh, particularly you know, in, in big cities. So the challenge is going to be ensuring that the poor who go to these hospitals and they have the proper registration to as a beneficiary under the scheme, that they are actually treated properly by the private sector hospitals. Although the public healthcare system is uh, not very strong, particularly outside the big cities of Delhi, Bombay, or you know some other cities like Chandigarh, which is not as big but has a better public healthcare system, 
outside these cities, the public healthcare system is not that great. But uh, Kerala, which is uh, one of the smallest states in India, but has uh, one of the best healthcare systems, not in terms of you know availability of medical technology or in terms of the grandness of the buildings of these hospitals, but in terms of the basic elementary level healthcare that Kerala has been able to provide. Kerala has a the highest literacy rate in India. It also has a you know reasonably good and efficient basic healthcare system. And this is why, although Kerala was the state where the first case of coronavirus in India was detected, as I said at the beginning, Kerala has been able to control this pandemic much better than most other states in India. And that's largely because of their more people-centric, more grassroots-oriented healthcare system. If I can add to what Pradeep mentioned about Kerala, what is particularly unique in Kerala's response has been the use of technology uh, in its in managing the crisis, including, um, for example, the telehealth apps, geospatial monitoring to enforce quarantines, and even the use of drones along the peripheries of containment zones in Kerala. And indeed, Kerala is now being held up as a role model for India, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, you, you, and not only the the Indian government and the Indian media, even the Western media is acknowledging Kerala's success in dealing with this crisis. Bali, let let me ask you about that health insurance program that's being rolled out as the country faces this epidemic. How far into the rollout is the government? How many people will benefit from that? Sure. The program, as Pradeep mentioned, is called Ayushman Bharat, and it was announced in 2018. It's a very ambitious health care program. It uh, envisions to be the world's largest health insurance program, covering 500 million uh, individuals, or about 40 to 50 percent of India's population. Currently, as of mid-April, the program has covered 110 million members. So about one-fifth of what its total goal is. And this represents a significant investment in uh, strengthening the capacity of the public health system to respond to the pandemic. In terms of the utilization, Pradeep is exactly right. Uh, The utilization of this program has been more in private hospitals than in public hospitals across India. So what does that mean if this uh, pandemic isn't able to be contained in India, if we see the sorts of rates of infections in the population that we're seeing in the United States, for example? That essentially means that individuals that didn't have access to uh, healthcare before now have access to go into a private hospital and receive treatment, which otherwise in the past they wouldn't have been able to afford in simple terms. Pradeep, as I said at the outset, uh, one of the reasons India is making headlines because of this extraordinary nationwide lockdown that has now been extended. Can you give us a bit of an idea of how extensive this lockdown is? Okay. It it was good that the Prime Minister Modi decided first to give the people of India a taste for what to expect uh, when a lockdown is formally announced. So on the 22nd of March, there was what the Prime Minister called a people's curfew, Janta curfew. And that was just a one-day event, which started in the the midnight and ended around sunset. And at the time, people were wondering what the government actually is trying to do, what this one-day lockdown is going to do. But 
uh, as it turns out, it was designed to give people a sense of what to expect. And then two days later, on the 24th of March, Prime Minister Modi went on television uh, in his address to the nation. He declared that there was going to be a a three-week lockdown. And he said this is going to be a total lockdown. And uh, most uh, non-essential businesses and government offices will be closed. Private sector companies will also shut down. Uh, So what has happened since then is that although there was only a four-hour notice given to the people, so Prime Minister Modi addressed the nation on the 24th of March uh, at about 8 p.m., and the lockdown came into effect uh, at midnight. So there was very little time given to the people. And next day, of course, the train stopped, the buses stopped. And if you understand the the kind of volume of people that Indian public transport systems carry, whether it's the Indian railways or the, the road transport companies in every state in India, millions of people travel every day by by trains and buses. And all that suddenly came to a standstill. And people were told to stay in their homes and uh, don't go out unless you have to, unless, for example, you have to go and see a doctor or buy medicine. So the chemist shops are apparently open. The pharmacies are open. Many of the grocery stores are open, not all day, but they're open for a few hours, apparently. Uh, So people are able to go and buy their groceries. In India, of course, uh, people have always been able to buy their vegetables and fruits from vendors who come door to door. And that is still going on, although the number of vendors who are able to go and and sell their fruits and vegetables door to door is is rather limited at the moment. So overall, in terms of, uh, you know, the supply of food, whether it's fresh produce or bread and uh, butter, for the middle class, it doesn't seem to be a big problem. The challenge, of course, has been for the poor, the poor who live in in slums or who are renting uh, accommodation in the so-called urban villages, for example, in Delhi. Urban villages is a phenomenon where city has grown around villages and these uh, you know, traditional villages are now surrounded by an urban population, but they continue to live. Uh, in a, there is no farming in these villages, but there is a lot of poor people, particularly a lot of migrant workers who come from all over India. They end up finding accommodation in these villages. So conditions in those places where a lot of migrant workers and poor people live aren't as great, and for them, access to food, etc., is not as smooth as it is for the middle class. So middle class generally, I think, by and large, is doing okay under the lockdown. But it's the poor and the itinerant workers, you know, who come from states like Bihar and UP to work in cities like Delhi or Bombay. They are the ones who are faring rather poorly in this. And indeed, we we saw those extraordinary and often very distressing pictures of hundreds of thousands of migrant workers literally walking home to their villages. Bali, how could that not have been anticipated when they shut everything down? How would they not have known that was going to happen? That's extremely puzzling. If we actually look at the volume of migrant workers, I was looking at some of the 2011 census, the last available census, 
in which it was reported that India has 400 million individuals that live in a part of India that they did not grow up in. That's a relatively large number. That's around 45% of the population. But if you put that in context of what share of those have actually migrated for employment, that number is much smaller. That number is about 50 million. That's a stock of people that migrate for employment opportunities. But layered on that, annually, there's an, a flow of about 5 to 10 million people that move across India in search of employment. And this includes the migrant labor that Pradeep has just talked about. It's extremely puzzling that that wasn't thought through. In the, in the initial response, the government said, we want everybody to stay put where they are. And it, they expected state governments to enforce this lockdown. Some state governments did a better job than others, including Kerala and Rajasthan. But in Uttar Pradesh, in Maharashtra, in Delhi, uh, this was completely not thought through. But I guess many of these itinerant workers don't have a place to stay. They stay where they work often. Yes, that's right. And with these factories shutting down, and they had no other option but to head back to their villages. And after a lot of negative criticism, there has been transport that has now been organized from the cities back into these villages. But you still see a large share of migrant workers stranded outside the villages and not being allowed to enter. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute. And just a note to listeners that Asia Institute has launched a new online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at www.melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find it at www.melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore, and I'm with health policy expert Dr. Azad Bali of ANU and political scientist Dr. Pradeep Tunisia of the University of Melbourne. We're talking about the COVID-19 crisis in India and how the social, political and economic fault lines there are coming under even greater pressure. Well, we were talking about the impact on informal workers, such a key part of the workforce in India. More broadly, Bali, how big an impact do you think this pandemic is going to have on India's economy? Clearly, it will depend how long it goes, but from where we sit today? The impact is estimated to be significantly large. Uh, there are multiple estimates that are out there. Um, the most severe uh, estimates are put out by Barclays Bank, and they estimate that the current GDP growth would be 0% and India wouldn't grow. Um, IMF has a more optimistic estimate that economic growth would be about 1.4% or so before picking up uh, in the next year. But we really haven't understood the impact of the crisis across both the rural sector as well as the urban, because in many parts of India, the economy has come to a grinding halt. Um, people are laid off. They don't have access to jobs. Uh, shops are closed. Uh, lives have been upended by this crisis. It's only once the economy begins to open up and we see some signs of revival will we be able to understand what the true impact has been. But it doesn't look pleasant from where we're sitting right now. And Pradeep, what are your thoughts, and particularly against the backdrop of an economy that was already seeing slower growth rates before this crisis, wasn't it? Well, exactly. I mean, that I think is going to be the biggest challenge because uh, after a period of rapid economic growth, Indian economy has actually slowed over the last few years. 
And that was a matter of concern for the government and, of course, for the business community in India. And even large business owners in India who are supposed to have close you know, connections with the current government, even they have been saying that things need to improve, the government needed to do more. And that's before the coronavirus. Now the latest, you know, some of the interviews I've watched with the, the Indian business tycoons, they are now saying that government does need to do something to make sure that when this crisis is over, then the economy can take off easily. And therefore, the conditions need to be created now. And government needs to develop a strategy to deal with the economy uh, post the coronavirus crisis. But at the moment, I think the problem is that Indian economy overall is a relatively small economy. For a country of 1.3 billion people, India's economy is less than $3 trillion. Even though it grew rapidly over a period of about 10 years or so, overall, the economy is relatively small. And that means that government revenue is also very limited. Although government has widened the tax net, so there are more people paying taxes, plus uh, the Modi government has also introduced the, the goods and services tax or GST, and GST has also contributed to raising government revenue, but still it's fairly limited. So the financial capacity of the Indian government to actually offer some sort of major stimulus package is very limited. And what the business community in India wants is for the government to actually do make some significant investments. Government also worries about incurring huge fiscal deficits because large fiscal deficits have a habit of creating inflation and inflation in India has always been a major political problem for governments. And therefore, I think the Modi government doesn't want to extend the fiscal deficit beyond its original targets of 3.5%, but I think it is likely to, to go higher because government really would have to do something about the economy and therefore I imagine there's going to be some more spending by the government. But the capacity of the government to actually increase government spending is relatively limited. It's it's very different from China, for example, where the Chinese government has been in the past able to spend a lot of money on building new railways and roads, etc., and therefore, you know, create you know economic growth and create employment. And Bali, how, how much firepower do you think that the Indian government has? I'm a bit more optimistic than what Pradeep mentions of India's capacity to respond uh, to this crisis uh, in economic terms. The, the puzzling part is that India has not announced an economic support package or economic or a package to stimulate economic growth. Um, apart from increasing liquidity in the market and the central bank cutting down interest rates. But if you look at India's overall economic numbers, the fiscal deficit is relatively under control. It's around 3.4% of GDP. Uh, and India's total debt uh, to GDP ratio is about 65%. Again, largely considered extremely sustainable. So India does have that capacity. It now depends upon the willingness of the government to come up with an, an innovative uh, stimulus package which the economy needs at this stage. The other thing that we must recognize is the current government has always been fiscally conservative. Even in its, in its previous regime with the National Democratic Alliance in the late 1990s, they introduced reforms that would reduce government expenditure. 
that legacy still pervades how it responds to current crises. But hopefully with the pressure that's placed, as Pradeep mentioned, by the business community and by the media uh, and in feedback from citizens, that we hope to see a more stronger stimulus package. Pradeep, if Bali is right and there is the uh, the capacity, why do you think so far there's been no appetite? I think the capacity that Bali is talking about is in terms of increasing the fiscal deficit. Uh, so it's not that the government has the resources at its disposal, but it could it could spend, it could print more money, it could increase fiscal deficit. Uh, but that, of course, would lead to higher inflation. Inflation can become a major issue in elections in India, and particularly because it affects the poor the most. And Bali, against that backdrop and, and against the issue that every country faces, which is, you know, the longer it goes, the harder it is, to what extent is there a debate in India today about lives versus livelihoods? You're right. I think the debate represents a very real fear um, of the long-term economic impact of the lockdown. Shutting down the economy is an extremely difficult and expensive decision, uh, particularly in an informal economy like India. In the extension of the lockdown, however, the Prime Minister announced that the government would reassess how districts in India were performing. And if they were tracking well, um, the government would gradually reduce uh, those restrictions that were being imposed. And this is uh, happening across in different parts of India. For example, Punjab uh, has widened the list of essential services and is allowing sand mining and construction activities to take place. But it has decentralized the decision making to the deputy commissioners across the state. And that's a decision that they'll have to take in consultation with the chief minister of Punjab. And similarly, Kerala has announced that it would, in the coming week, allow local businesses such as restaurants and barbershops um, to open. So we've touched on the economic and, and the social fault lines. What about religion. If we look at the fact, and I know that Pradeep was talking earlier about the first case in Kerala coming from returning students, they've obviously been one factor in the spread of this virus, but religious gatherings have been another. Uh, if we take, for example, the meeting of the Tabliki Jamaat sect in Delhi, how has the, the virus heightened the religious fault lines that have, I guess, long been present in Indian society. Bali, if I can put that to you first. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I think you're right. The, um, religion has always been a flashpoint in Indian politics and politicians of all stripes uh, have been guilty of exploiting religious sensitivities. But we have to acknowledge that religious meetings have been vectors of the virus. 16,000 cases, a third of them are attributed to the meeting in, in New Delhi of the Tibligi Jamaat. But there have been other vectors as well, including in Madhya Pradesh and in Punjab. Uh, but the scale of these have been much smaller. But I think part of the problem is that there's been a limited, if any, immediate contrition or even public acknowledgement amongst leaders of these religious organizations that, yes, you know, we've messed up and we're encouraging our, our members of our communities to go to these public health centers uh, and report that they're infected. But they just haven't demonstrated that sense of public leadership at this stage. Pradeep, how do you see these religious fault lines? I think what's happened in India in the wake of the coronavirus crisis is that some of the the old fault lines in Indian society have come into sharper relief. So, for example, ever since the BJP came to power in 2014, we've seen a sharper division 
you know, between Hindus and Muslims, for example. Muslims have felt increasingly under pressure, increasingly felt marginalized. And the coronavirus crisis, and particularly that event uh, hosted by this uh, Muslim missionary organization, Tablighi Jamaat in Delhi, which is an annual event, apparently, it takes place uh, once a year. It attracts thousands of people from India and, and abroad. And this year's event took place, it started, I think, on the 3rd of March, 2020. And it came to an end, really, when this health crisis became much worse. Now, the Indian government has said that the Bligi Jamaat, the organization, was given a couple of warnings, and they did not end this event. So obviously, this was a long event, it started on the 3rd of March. But the organizers have said that when the Prime Minister announced that people's curfew that I mentioned earlier on the 22nd of March, that they told their participants who had come from all over the world to this event to go back, that the event had ended. But because two days later, the lockdown, the total lockdown came into effect on the the 25th of March, that many of these people were not able to travel. And therefore, they got stuck. Many of them stayed back in Delhi, stayed back in the accommodation provided by Tablighi Jamaat, and therefore, they were not able to contain the spread of this virus. So either way, I think the Tablighi Jamaat organization clearly is responsible for contributing to a large number of cases. The Indian government, the Ministry of Health has said, that 30% of all the cases, the coronavirus cases in India, are as a result of participation in this event, the Tablighi Jamaat event in Delhi. In states like UP, Uttar Pradesh, which has uh, now nearly a 1,000 coronavirus cases, according to the Indian Health Ministry, about 60% of the cases may be related to the Tablighi Jamaat event. So clearly, the organizers of this event, they could have done a much better job but the fact is that this could have happened to any religious group, really. I mean, Hindu organizations also have many major events. So in a country like India, where religion plays a very important part in the social life of the country, religious organizations do tend to organize really mega events, very big events. So it could have happened to any religious group. And the fact is that this time it is a Muslim organization, which is largely responsible for a large number of these cases. But this has meant that on social media, in electronic media in India, this had been turned into some sort of anti-Muslim thing, that this is Muslims, it's the behavior of the Muslims. In, in many cases, some of the trolls have been saying that they have deliberately been infecting people, that they have created this you know, situation knowingly. And when you connect it, when you link it up with the kind of anti-Muslim sentiment which has been growing in India over the last six years, then you can see that these fault lines really have been sharpened much more uh, as a result of this crisis. In, indeed, one commentator put it that the, the virus is just another staging post on the route to the marginalisation of Muslim India. And Pradeep, you, you talk about social media and the anti-Muslim sentiment the government does not counter that, does it? Well, it's interesting because uh, Hindu-Muslim tensions is nothing new. I mean, India in India, Muslims and Hindus have lived reasonably amicably, you know, for centuries. 
But there have always been tensions from time to time between Hindus and Muslims. But generally, at the community level, people tend to you know, manage them. And generally, the governments, particularly the prime ministers of the day, would come out and you know, ask people to, to not exaggerate these differences. In the current case, the prime minister, Modi, has been relatively slow in coming up with calling upon people. So, for example, yesterday, the 19th of April, Prime Minister Modi did make a statement calling for unity and brotherhood that the virus doesn't see differences between races and color and religion, and therefore we should be focusing on dealing with the crisis rather than targeting people. So he's come out and said something now, but that's always the case. Prime Minister Modi has a habit of waiting for a long time before he would make such a statement. I would expect him to actually be more proactive in dealing with these, uh, particularly marginalization of a minority community in a much more rapid fashion than he generally does. Bali, how do you see this issue of anti-Muslim sentiment, but also, I guess, the broader issue of false narratives around coronavirus? A couple of uh, responses to that. The first is, I think, it speaks to the polarization in Indian politics that no political leader has come out and condemned this ghettoization that Pradeep just talked about of the minority communities in response to this coronavirus, right? That's including, if you look at the major opposition party, the Congress party or the Ahmadmi party, their leaders haven't taken to the stage to tell people that, no, this is not how you should respond in the first instance. The second part, there have been large instances of fake news, of false information that has been circulated and that has caused a lot of disharm. The most telling of that was recently where you saw thousands of migrant workers gather at a train station in Mumbai, in Bandra, because they receive messages forwarded on WhatsApp that there are trains that have been made available to take them back home. And this turned out to be untrue later on. Um, equally telling is in Gujarat, there have been reports, including picked up by the BBC, that hospitals are uh, segregating patients based on their religion, something that both the government and the Ministry of External Affairs have put out statements that that is untrue. So they have been many instances like this, which have caused significant harm in response to this crisis. Bali, how do you see this affecting Modi? Is it a a make or break for him as prime minister? Or or is it something that he has sufficient political capital that uh, it won't affect his standing in the community? So Mr. Modi is a man that elicits extremely strong emotions uh, in equal measure be that either admiration and respect uh, for a large section of the society and in equal measure contempt and disillusionment by a smaller section in the society. But he still has a strong connect with the average Indian citizen and sort of unparalleled political capacity. If you look at the last few reforms that were introduced that caused significant hardship, whether that be the demonetization or the GST reform, for instance, uh, his popularity didn't take a beating. Um, The average citizen still connects with him, still listens to him, and still believes in him and his leadership. So I'm not entirely sure if this will diminish his image as a leader. Pradeep, what do you think? I agree with Bali. I think uh, Prime Minister Modi, he's been very clever in managing this coronavirus crisis, particularly the the discourse surrounding it. 
He has appeared uh, several times on television, although he doesn't give press conferences. So unlike the leaders of all other democracies that are dealing with the coronavirus crisis, whose leaders come out and every day address the media and take questions, Prime Minister Modi doesn't do that. But he does give these monologues, you know, these uh, addresses to the nation where he projects himself as the leader in control and he is the one who is leading this uh, charge against the coronavirus. There are news stories where the prime minister is holding meetings with the chief ministers and government officials from all over India on the internet using a Zoom-like platform. And therefore, he, he projects himself as the person who is actually very much in control of this whole narrative. So I think the coronavirus crisis is unlikely to have any major impact or make a major dent on the popularity of the prime minister. And I think another reason why um, Mr. Modi's popularity is likely to be undiminished is that if you look at the larger discourse around this crisis, the politicization has not been that stark. The tone, the tenor of the political discourse has been extremely soft, accommodating and genteel. All political leaders, including those in opposition, support the government's efforts. And that image which Pradeep was talking about of Mr. Modi on a Zoom call with the chief ministers across India and all of them, the chief ministers making statements after that meeting in support of the government's initiatives go to strengthen his capacity and credibility as a leader. So so if we step back and, and we look more broadly, as I said in the introduction to this, there is a, a sense uh, from many that the world post-COVID-19 will not look the same. What do you think it will mean for India? Do you see any long-term changes to Indian society? I think going forward, we would see a greater investment in public health care. Uh, successive governments in India have willfully and systematically ignored investments in public health, um, investments in building social safety nets, especially ensuring benefits for migrant workers. Um, so I think we'll see that being strengthened. I think another thing to look forward to is a new class of political leaders and entrepreneurs who've been working at the grassroots levels and responding to this crisis, acquiring some prominence. I'm not too sure what that might mean at the national stage, or but you've seen responses to the crisis, whether that be in Kerala or in Agra or Rajasthan or in Chandigarh. You've seen these pockets of excellence where you've seen local councillors, uh, being extremely innovative, being extremely extremely entrepreneurial and ensuring that citizens have access to these services. So hopefully that will galvanize uh, some attention and interest in politics and seeing how these leaders, these youth leaders have a chance to step up. Pradeep, what about you? Uh, do you see long-term changes to Indian society? I agree with Bali that uh, what this crisis has done, it has um, brought into sharper relief the, the weaknesses of India's healthcare system and social you know, safety net system. And, and clearly there are going to be calls for the government to do more in these areas, particularly with public health. I mean, 1% of GDP on health is actually very small for a country which has such a large population and so many problems. But I think the capacity of the Indian government to deliver on that, even if the government does take on board all the, the good suggestions which are put forward by well-meaning people in India, 
The problem is going to be the economic capacity of the Indian government to do much about it. So, for example, the economic impact of the coronavirus crisis is going to be quite severe, I believe. And that would mean that the government revenue and the government resources would further decline over the next few years. And therefore, I can't expect the Indian government to actually take some lessons out of this crisis and go beyond the past track record in terms of spending on public health. In terms of uh, the, you know, what India is going to look like in the wake of the post-coronavirus crisis, as Bali said, the polarization, the marginalization of the minorities, and particularly the Muslim minority, I think that trend is unlikely to be reversed. If anything, I think that's likely to get worse. In terms of the welfare of the poor, particularly migrant workers, I think for the first time in India's history, the migrant workers' plight has been highlighted by the coronavirus crisis because this is a segment of the population which historically hasn't attracted much attention. And I think what the coronavirus crisis has done, it has brought that also into sharper relief. So we are going to see much more discussion, much more debate about the migrant workers. And uh, we probably will see some sort of accounting of migrant workers as part of the census. And internationally, in terms of foreign policy, of course, India's capacity to influence international developments would be limited by India's economic capacity. If the Indian economy slows, if India's GDP growth slows to what it was before the coronavirus crisis and is not picked up fairly quickly, then ultimately it will also affect India's clout internationally. Pradeep, I always like to try and finish on an optimistic as opposed to a pessimistic note. Can we take the recognition of the need for more healthcare spending, if not necessarily immediately the capacity and the recognition for the first time of the plight of migrant workers, that at least once you recognise, you can start to change? I think you do because, I mean, after all, India is a democracy. And in a democracy, governments have to, political parties have to listen to the people. And migrant workers in India... They may be displaced from their native places, native you know, villages, but they do vote. So even if they move to a city like Delhi or Bombay, they actually do register to vote. So they can vote and they can make a, make a difference in many of the important constituencies. Even in Delhi, for example, there are some constituencies where the migrant workers play a very important part in elections. So hopefully... Uh, the democratic process would mean that uh, the, both the major political parties, the BJP, the current ruling party, and the Congress party and other political parties in India would begin to pay more attention to the plight of the poor, such as the rural poor, but also the urban poor in India. Well, of course, we hope very much that uh, India can continue to do uh, relatively well in tackling this terrible virus. And we do very much appreciate uh, your time and your insights, both of you. Thank you very much, Bali. And thank you very much, Pradeep. Thank you, Ali. Thank you very much, Ali. Our guests have been political scientists, Dr. Pradeep Tunisia of the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences and health policy researcher, Dr. Azad Bali of the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy at Australia National University. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find out more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. You can keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app.
Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 20th of April, 2020. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.